today on Mother Mayhem. Trauma recovery is about finding a new normal, not putting your life on hold until you're completely healed. You are more than the pain you've endured, and I want you to know that I really believe that. Healing, it's rewriting your narrative. And in that rewriting, you hopefully learn that you're worth those three seconds it takes to send the emoji. The thing that's maddening about triggers and the thing that you find yourself reacting to is oftentimes you're reacting to the very things you want and crave the most. Hi, it's Heather. Welcome back to Mother Mayhem, the Narcissistic Abuse Recovery Podcast for Daughters. I'm so glad you're here. Today, we're going to be talking about a really sensitive topic that is a critical component for healing when it comes to narcissistic abuse recovery. I don't think this is an easy conversation to have. It probably will bring up a lot of embarrassing things for you, things that you feel sensitive about and things that you try to keep to yourself and don't really talk about. We're talking about triggers, the way we respond to things in our regular everyday life that happen as a result of what we've been through. Now, here's the thing. One of the major components of trauma recovery is learning to manage your response to triggers. And most people are seeking treatment because the way they respond to their pain and trauma just isn't working for them anymore. And your way of moving through the world is no longer working for you. In today's conversation, I really want to help you get a handle on all of this. I want to help you by offering ways of understanding and responding to the common triggers that you're likely managing and encountering on a regular basis. But we have to be really honest with one another. This is an episode about triggers intended for people who experience triggers. The potential that you will find yourself triggered by this at some point is really real and it exists. So I first want to remind you that I trust you to know your own limits and to know if this is an episode that you think you can handle. It might not be the right time for this episode in your life. It might not be the right day. It might not be the right time of day. And that's okay. You know what you can handle. And you know all of the other balls that you're managing that are in the air and that you're juggling right now on top of listening to this episode. So I want you to trust yourself. And I want you to trust yourself to know whether or not this is an episode you're ready for and whether or not this is the time for it. Also remember, too, that even if you do choose to listen, you can stop listening at absolutely any point. You can pause the conversation, you can slow it down for yourself, you can listen to it in smaller chunks, and you can always stop and work on some of the grounding techniques. I have a worksheet for those that you can try, and I'm going to include a link for them in the show notes. But again, just as a reminder, grounding is anything that connects you to the five senses. So you can calm yourself down when you start to feel dysregulated by tuning into things that you might be able to see, things that you hear, things you can touch, feel, taste, or smell. So just give yourself a minute here and check in with yourself. 
take that deep breath and make sure you're in the mental space that's strong enough to talk about some of the really hard things you might be dealing with. This is a really sensitive topic for a lot of you. But first, before we get into how to manage it and what to do about it, we have to tackle the word trigger. Honestly, the word trigger can cause a pretty strong reaction in me if I'm being truthful. I hate the word. If I had my way, I'd call them reactions. Here's the thing, and this is how I think about triggers. You see, I moved to California from the East Coast at the end of 2017. And sometime in our first spring here, I came to notice how my skin got itchy at night, right around 6 p.m. It was totally weird. I would take a Claritin and it would settle pretty quickly, but then the itching would start on my arms. If I ignored it, I would start to feel itchy in my feet and then I'd feel itchy in my chest. I never got the whole itchy watery eyes thing. I never got the cough and I didn't have a problem during the day, only at night. Apparently nighttime allergies are a thing. So not everyone's skin gets itchy. Not everyone responds to spring in California with itchy skin. But I do. My skin has an itchy reaction to California. Why? Maybe because I have a predisposition to eczema, but it doesn't really matter. It also doesn't matter that not a lot of people react to the weather like I do. What matters is that I have a reaction and that my skin needs a response. Judging myself for this reaction, feeling ashamed or embarrassed or ignoring the itch because I think it's weird that my skin itches at night, it's not going to help anything. My skin itches at night, and as a result, it needs certain things. Meeting that need is non-negotiable. Otherwise, the problem gets worse and a rash develops. My skin reacts, period, beginning, middle, and end. And it's that reaction that needs attention. And the reaction and its impact is lessened when I take care of it sooner rather than later. That's how I view triggers. You're having a reaction to something, and your reaction is real. Even if no one else is having the same reaction, and that reaction deserves your attention, lest it get any worse. Triggers can be really anything that creates physical, emotional, or psychological reactions in you. Triggers might be pings of bad memories of past events or situations that create feelings you've felt before. For you listening, it might be the things you felt with your mom growing up or things you feel today when you're in a relationship with her. These might be the things that cause feelings of stress or fear or anxiety. And you might find or experience triggers in situations, in words, in actions, or even in sensory memories, or in the painful memories of your abusive and neglectful relationship with your mom. Unfortunately, we know that a lot of daughters of narcissists also end up in other painful relationships in their lives, not just the one you had with your mom. These aren't going to be easy things to talk about. And as I said in conversation about triggers can be particularly triggering. I'm bringing this up not to torture you, not to make you crawl out of your skin, but so that you can learn to manage your emotional responses more effectively. So you can learn that you have control over your emotional responses. I want you to understand why you're reacting the way you're reacting. I want you to show validation and understanding and compassion for your own reactions, but I also want you to feel more in control of them. If we don't learn about and talk about your triggers, 
trauma brain shows up and it runs the show. Trauma brain's my unofficial name for when your brain wires you for protection. It scans your environment for risks or threats to your safety. Triggers kick in trauma brain to take over, and oftentimes that can lead to these disproportionate reactions that lead you feeling out of control of your body, your thoughts, and your feelings. And we want to get you back in control. We want you back in the driver's seat of your own life and in your own car. That's why we're here. So another psychobabble word we hear a lot and we come across a lot in the trauma recovery space and the narcissistic abuse recovery space is the word rupture. <laughs> and if I'm going to be honest with you, I hate that word probably as much as I hate trigger. But here's the thing. It sounds dramatic. And when someone tells you that you've experienced a rupture, it can be pretty intimidating and overwhelming. However, that word rupture is a word that's often used in trauma recovery and narcissistic abuse recovery. You're going to see it in social media, somebody having a rupture. You're going to see it in the self-help books. You're going to see it in the YouTube videos around discussions of trauma recovery and narcissistic abuse recovery, and I want you to know that we're all talking about the same thing here, but I do want you to have your own understanding and self-compassion for what you're holding and what you're managing. When we're talking about the word rupture, when we say you've experienced a rupture, what we're saying is that you have experienced a break in your own sense of psychological safety and well-being. You're not comfortable. You don't feel quite right. It doesn't feel good in your skin. It creates this sense of physical and emotional dysregulation, and we want to treat it, at least at the beginning, as your true perspective. Treating this as your true perspective, now this is where it gets tricky and sticky, because if someone you care about, for example, let's walk through a real-life example I hear about all the time. If someone you care about gets busy with work and they're like up against a deadline or something, they might not respond to one of your texts, but that non-response to your text might be the trigger for you. It's the behavior that causes a reaction. Someone not texting you back creates that reaction, that dysregulation, that rupture in your sense of well-being, in your sense of feeling calm, in your sense of feeling connected to yourself. That reaction is where the rupture happens to your sense of well-being. You might feel anxious. You might get nervous or scared. You might start scanning the situation for proof positive that you're about to be abandoned or that the person is leaving you. And you might start to worry that something's wrong with you. And you might go from zero to 60 that quickly, especially if you're just at the beginning of trauma recovery. Because you're just starting to understand yourself and you're just starting to figure out all of this. So you might feel like something's wrong with you, that you're going crazy because you're having this intense, crazy reaction simply because it's been three hours since someone you care about has texted you back. Now, in reality, there's probably a part of you that intellectually knows this too, that this person is likely not abandoning you. They may not, in fact, be abandoning you. They may not have forgotten about you at all, and they might love you just as much as they did the last time they saw you. But your reaction, that like racing hearts, the racing intrusive thoughts, the perseverating, that's real. And even if they're not an accurate read on the situation, you do have to pay attention. 
because narcissistic abuse recovery work is trauma work. And this is what is involved in trauma recovery work. It's important and critical and crucial that you notice these reactions. And instead of judging them or blaming them or shaming yourself for having them, we want to help you get curious about them. We want to learn what they're there to tell you about yourself and teach you about yourself. We want you noticing the feelings and those physical sensations in your body. We want you to notice and start to get comfortable with the energy that's getting created. We want you to pay attention to the thoughts in your head and get curious about them. What are you thinking and what are you feeling? You might be having this reaction and now you're feeling dysregulated. You're not feeling as calm or as centered as you were before this happened. Once you can get clear on what it is you're reacting to, that's when you can tell yourself out loud, someone I care about hasn't responded to my message. It's making me feel anxious, sad, or scared. But that's my trauma brain talking. My trauma brain is more wired for protection than it is for connection. So my trauma brain is trying to protect me from rejection by responding to the first thing that looks like abandonment. But that might not be what this thing is. I know, guys, that this sounds hokey and it sounds forced and fake, but you are just learning how to talk back to that inner critic in your head. You are just learning how to get control over all of this. So some of this is going to sound formulaic. Some of it is going to be forced and hokey, but you're just going to have to trust me that when you start to do this process on repeat, talking to yourself and calming yourself down and reassuring yourself that you are safe and you're not going to be abandoned, then you will find that your body regulates faster, your thoughts calm faster, and you're more in control of this entire thing. Talking yourself through it and seeing the feeling through it might be all you need to do. We often just get stuck because we don't see our feelings through and instead we just shove them down. But when we shove them down and tell ourselves we're crazy or there's no reason we should be doing this or we don't want to seem high maintenance or too needy, those negative stories, those fears of abandonment, that thought that we're not worthy of someone's attention, they start to become true. And they, without knowing it and without our permission, become the narrative and the story we tell ourselves about ourselves. But if we can stop and examine these stories we're telling ourselves and look at for real where these things are coming from, we often find that they're quite different from what's actually happening in front of us. Sometimes, though, just telling yourself that it's trauma brain, it's just not going to work. That's when it's really important that you begin to say your truth and your perspective out loud. And as a trauma survivor, you might be used to telling yourself, she didn't mean it. I'm sure she's just busy. He didn't mean it. He was just busy or something like that. But again, without verification, your trauma brain is likely to attach itself to the negative story, to the abandonment story, the story that tells you that you're being left. Now, in our fourth episode together about relationships, I introduced you to this concept of building trauma-informed relationships. This means including the people who have earned your trust into your experience and sharing with them how you're feeling and responding. Now, this next part, 
It's going to make your stomach turn and it's going to make you super nervous. So I just want you to do me a favor here. Just take a deep breath. Calm your body. Remind yourself that you're here to learn. And again, a reminder that you here are in control of the pacing. You can stop at any time. You can say where, you can say when, and you can say not now. But if we continue to use this example of the unreturned text and your reaction to it, the next part means waiting until you're back in touch with the person and then sharing what happened to you in your reaction. It means saying something like, hey, I know you've got a lot going on and I know work is super busy, but I've got to tell you that you not texting me after I've gotten so used to our regular banter and consistency, well, I just started to get a little bit nervous. In the past, I have to share with you that unreturned messages have been the beginning of someone leaving me and someone changing their mind about me. I get that you're busy and I don't expect us to be in 24-7 contact, but if you think you're going to be out of contact for a while or at least out of the pacing of the regular kind of contact we've gotten to have, would it be okay if you let me know? I know this is a super vulnerable ask and it feels totally weird and gimmicky and forced, but it's going to feel weird and gimmicky when you actually get the need met too. This not getting a response to texts and messages, like this is a common trigger for a lot of women I see. And as I help them build trauma-informed relationships, one of the quick things I teach is working out a symbol in your close relationships that when you send it or the person sends it to you, you're telling each other, I care about you. I don't want you to worry about us. We're safe. I'm coming back. Now, this can be an emoji, it can be a word, a picture, a code word, anything that's quick and easy to send an offer of reassurance back and forth to one another in busier, frantic, or frenetic times. Right around now, I can hear you talking back to me, calling it hokey and doubting that anyone would actually ever do that for you. But here's the thing, in this communication and in this gesture, you're teaching the people you care about the most and the people who care about you, you're teaching them how to love you. Anyone who loves you and cares about you is going to want you to feel safe with them and isn't going to be wanting you to doubt yourself. And here's a really hard truth, and I just want to say it from the get-go. Will this be too much for some people? Will it be too much for some and they won't be able to handle it? Yeah, it's true. It might be too much for someone to handle. And this might not be something that some people will be willing to do. But if they can't send you an emoji and they can't commit to helping you feel safe and secure and engaging in you helping them feel safe and secure, there's a whole host of other things involved in a healthy relationship that they're not going to be able to do for you either. And it's a really good indicator that this isn't a person who can do the work of building a healthy, trauma-informed relationship with you. If they can't do it, they're doing you a favor by telling you. And that's hard and it hurts. And none of us want to think we're too much but the reality is, is we absolutely are too much for some people because after all, there are people who were not enough for us. 
And it's better to know that now over an emoji than over something that's of deeper meaning and deeper significance for you. Because if they can't do that, there's a whole lot of other things they're not going to be able to do either. And you can have people who can't do the work in your life, but they can't be the people in your inner circle. They can't be in that group of people you trust to lean on. You don't get dysregulated when everyone you know skips a text message or a message. You're getting dysregulated when it's someone close. And the people close to you should be able to do this. And if they can't, they likely cannot be your people. Just because I'm saying this now doesn't mean you have to go all scorched earth on everyone and start ending all the relationships where people can't show up in the way that you need them to. But it does mean you have to start paying attention to what I'm saying here. The relationships in your life matter. And the, you have to know and pay attention to who is capable of showing up and who isn't. Because knowing that and getting in control of it is how you get in control of trauma brain. Now, I imagine you're listening to this and maybe you're getting really overwhelmed right about now. I, I'm probably talking a little bit too fast even as I do it. You might be starting to connect to how much work you have left to do in trauma recovery and narcissistic abuse recovery. And you might be noticing what you've been allowing into your life and what needs to change. And that's okay. Just take a deep breath. We're not doing this in a day and we're not going to solve this in a single podcast episode. Learning this and learning to make connections to the part of the recovery process you're right where you're supposed to be. This is right where you're supposed to be. You're not supposed to have all the answers. And I, I don't mind like self-disclosing a little bit that as I'm talking to you about this, this is really important to me. And I find myself putting the pressure on myself to be perfect, to have the answer, to offer the perfectly scripted response to each of these situations so you can feel immediately more in control of your life. But the therapist in me knows and accepts that that's not how any of this works. It takes time. It takes repetition. It takes practice. It takes thinking about and considering these things on repeat in order to be able to grasp them. Now, here's a good point for me to share something with you that I feel really strongly about when it comes to trauma recovery, narcissistic abuse recovery, and healing. Your life should not be defined by being in trauma recovery or doing trauma recovery work. This is not who you are. You are not what has happened to you or what hasn't happened to you. Trauma recovery is about finding a new normal, not putting your life on hold until you're completely healed. You are more than the pain you've endured. And I want you to know that I really believe that. Healing... It's rewriting your narrative. And in that rewriting, you hopefully learn that you're worth those three seconds it takes to send the emoji. The thing that's maddening about triggers and the thing that you find yourself reacting to is oftentimes you're reacting to the very things you want and crave the most. You want to get your needs met, but when you do, you feel scared and insecure and you want to push it all away. You want to step toward your goals. But when you even think about defining your goals or taking a step towards them, you get stuck. You want that great relationship, but your picker is broken. 
This is our trauma brain at work, and you have to work with it. Trauma brain keeps you in the dark, hiding and minimizing your truth. That's your shame talking. We need to bring your truth into the light because shame cannot exist in the light. I learned that through Brene Brown's research a million years ago, and it feels so powerful for me to share that with you today. And it's a really good reminder for you as you navigate all of this. I also like this quote that I found by Dr. Glenn Patrick Doyle on Instagram. Now, sometimes he's a trauma recovery therapist or influencer, probably both. Sometimes he gets a little too angry, resentful, and bitter for my taste. But he had this post where he says, we are not ourselves when we get triggered. We're who we think we need to be in order to survive. And I find that so true and so powerful. This is your trauma brain trying to help you survive when you are responding to a trigger. It just doesn't always know that you're not at war anymore. So we have to break down some of these common triggers. In our third episode together, we talked about building a better relationship with yourself. And as you do the work of that episode and get to know yourself more, you might learn some things about yourself that you didn't necessarily know about before. You might find that there's places where you have to hold new accountability with yourself. For example, you might catch one of your trigger responses and notice that you're playing small in order to avoid triggers. So you have these goals, you have these aspirations, but you're so afraid of failure, you're not showing up and you're hiding and you're minimizing your achievement lest you not get what you want. And a good way to navigate out of that is to walk yourself through what's scary for you and what it is you're trying to do. And then ask yourself, what do I need or what do I need to communicate in order for this to be and feel safer for me? Most times we just tell ourselves we shouldn't be scared and we have to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and do it, but that doesn't often work. But if we can say, what would help me feel safer? Sometimes I also like the question, who do I need to be for what it is I say I want? But when you catch yourself playing small and you catch yourself trying to avoid that fear of failure, it's a really good way to center yourself and navigate out of that is by looking at what is it that I find so scary here? What would help this feel less scary? And what do I need in order to show up for myself on a grander scale? And that might mean that you need to do something different, but it might also mean that you need to communicate something to other people so that you have help and support while you're trying to do things. Now, your sense of self and your self-esteem might be and feel pretty fragile right now. After all, that might be why you're here. And it might feel like the slightest ding to your self-esteem could just knock you over. In that third episode, I offered journaling prompts intended to help you think some of these things through. If you didn't go to that episode or you didn't grab those journaling prompts, I'm going to include a link for that in the show notes. And just a reminder, all these links for these worksheets and these journaling prompts that I'm offering, there's no email list attached. I'm not even trying to grab your email. I just want to make listening to these episodes easier for you by offering a little more of a structure and organized response to them, because I do know that I tend to talk a lot and get wordy, and I don't want you guys ending up in the weeds just because I'm a little too verbose. 
Coming to understand and accept yourself is the core process of narcissistic abuse recovery work. And as you go through it and you reintroduce yourself to yourself, you might find yourself more cautious, guarded, and sensitive to criticism. It's a good idea for these instances that you remind yourself that all of this is new for you. You haven't gotten your reps in, so to speak. You haven't practiced. So of course, all of this feels vulnerable and new and wildly unfamiliar. Validate those feelings for yourself while also recognizing that those feelings aren't a reason to quit. Instead, ask yourself, who has earned your vulnerability? Who are you willing to do that work for? What do you care about? What are you willing to do the work for? Now, in encouraging you to check in with yourself and show up for yourself, I might feel like I'm asking you to strip down naked in the middle of Times Square and say, here I am, world, look at me, take your best shot. But that's not what I'm doing. I'm asking you to think about who and what you're willing to show up for and work towards showing up for that. I'm asking you that you think about baby steps, not climbing the mountain in a single day. In our sixth episode together, we talked about how a common struggle that daughters of narcissistic mothers can have is the pressure to people please and be perfect. And in moments when you perceive yourself to have failed, it's likely that you might become dysregulated, have a reaction, or experience one of those ruptures we were talking about. Failing or making a mistake can be really triggering for a lot of you. And what's good here is that there aren't different steps for different triggers. The same process I walked you through about the mixed message and that missed text response, it works here too. If you made a mistake or you perceive that you've made a mistake, it's likely that you're first going to notice that right in your body. You might find that you get really anxious really fast. You might find that your breathing quickens or that your inner critic goes bonkers and suddenly takes control over your entire brain. And all you can think about is what a screw up you are as the tape inside your head starts to play louder and louder and faster and faster. Now notice all those things. You don't have to like all of them. You certainly don't have to like all of them. But notice those sensations. It's dysregulating when you do your best and your best doesn't work. It's okay to give it a minute. You're not used to accepting imperfection. That's another thing that you're going to have to get used to as you get your reps in and get some practice at it. And while you're practicing, again, bring the so-called mistake right into the light. Don't let it become shame. Look at the mistake and ask yourself, what amends might need to be made. And there might be none because after all, sometimes trauma brain might be telling you that you fucked it all up when in actuality you have it. So you're going to have to slow the whole thing down and look at the evidence of the situation. And it might even be one of those situations where you have to ask a trusted friend or a trusted person's advice or perspective on it to say, I think I screwed this up did I screw this up? Or is this my trauma brain just going bonkers and haywire? You might have to look at who, if anyone, deserves an explanation. Then you just do your best to offer one. Odds are, though, that the most work you're going to have to do here is with yourself. Responding to the kind of trigger means giving yourself permission to actually make mistake. 
and to recognize that you're human and giving yourself permission to make amends and to make a recovery if one is necessary. Trauma survivors often think that they're not worthy of being forgiven. They can see relationships in this all or nothing kind of way. So they're either all good or all bad. And as soon as you've made a mistake, you become all bad to yourself. But you're not all good and you're not all bad and you're not all one mistake. And there's a part of you that knows this. You know this to be true for other people. And if it's true for other people, it's true for you too. Asking for forgiveness is often easier than giving permission to yourself to be forgiven. But that's where the work is, giving yourself permission to not be perfect, to not always please people, to make a mistake, and to allow mistakes to be forgiven or overlooked when you make a genuine attempt at making a repair. And just like I wanted you to walk through how you can be particularly sensitive to abandonment, you might find yourself equally reactive to getting too close to people too soon. Even when you actually like the person, someone wanting to be close to you and getting to know you is going to challenge that core story you have about yourself, that you're unlovable or that you're someone people leaves. You might be remembering times when your mom gave you that illusion of being close just so she could get something from you or something she wanted from you. You might not know what closeness is and what kind of closeness actually feels safe. So what kind of intimacy is a threat and what kind of intimacy isn't? As I've been walking you through this, I want you to remind yourself that this is a moment when you slow yourself down and you notice your response. Recognize that someone wanting to be closer to you and someone wanting to get to know you more might in fact be triggering. It might create that reaction and it's okay. Also too, just like I talked about in our fourth episode on relationships, you don't trust that picker of yours. And that sometimes, if we're going to be honest, is for a really good reason. We always want to make sure that the well version of you, the healthy version of you, is the one doing the picking of the people who are going to be close to you so that you can listen to your instincts and slow things down and assess. That's how you're going to feel safer. You want to notice what is happening in your body. You want to notice how you're feeling and you want to work to calm your body. You want to ask yourself what you think about this person. How does this person make you feel in your body? Does it feel safe and secure? In previous episodes, I've encouraged you to get really clear about what it is you need from people you're going to be close to. Does this person meet that criteria? Is this someone you're interested in and you want to know more about? It's all well and good that this person has decided that you are interesting and that you are someone that they want to know more. But do you? Are there red flags? Is there anything to pay attention to? And just because someone likes you isn't a reason to get closer to them. It's about whether or not you like them too. What does your gut instinct say? And in this, you've got to give yourself permission to take time, but also recognize that it's okay to communicate so that if you quickly connect with someone working on a project together, or if you're single and you find yourself on a promising date, 
It's okay to slow the roll to a pace that's more comfortable for you. You're just going to have to talk about it and communicate it. So first, what you're going to want to do here is get grounded with yourself and get calm in your body. Then take a beat. Take a moment. Then think about what is it that you actually need for this connection to feel secure. It might be something as simple as, it was so nice to meet you today. Thanks so much for your time. What a compliment that you want to know more about me in such a short time. I'm glad we spent together today, and I'm really looking forward to getting to know you more going forward. I just, I'm not comfortable sharing that right now, or I'm not comfortable moving all in and binging on a lot of time together. My latest Netflix binge, though, I'm happy to share that. I've just learned that when I get too personal too fast, I tend to wall off and I catch myself being insincere. I'd much rather slow this connection down so I can be real and enjoy the pace. I know that's over-communication, and I know that's a lot of words. Of course it is. And are you saying 50 million extra words to be clear? Of course you are. This is how you show your trauma brain that it can take the night off, that you've got this, and that you can be responsible for getting your own needs met. You don't have to be wired for protection like trauma has you being when you can do what you need to do to communicate what it is you need for those new connections to be and feel safer for you. And do you have to get all super vulnerable and share with someone, this is what I've learned about myself in Heather's style? No, you don't have to use my words, but you do have to find some words to say, hey, I'm really getting to know you. I'm enjoying it. I like what I'm learning so far. But if we do this too fast, if we put the gas on this, I'm not going to feel comfortable. And then I don't act like myself when I'm not feeling comfortable. You get to find your words and your language. Always borrow mine if you don't have any for yourself, because it's important that you talk and it's important that you say something so you don't risk being misunderstood. But find your way and find your style. And as you get your reps in, you're going to have an easier time doing that. Now, I know there's so many other triggers that I haven't even begun to mention here. And I've already gone on for quite a while. And we haven't even scraped the surface of things that can create reactions in you. I know it and I get it. This is where I remind you that I would love to use your real life struggles and scenarios to answer directly to the things that hurt you. You can always send an email or a recorded voice memo to heather at daughtersnpd.com. I'd love to have your real life concerns and struggles to work from. Also, though, some of the triggers that I didn't cover, well, they're going to include things like times when you feel like you've been manipulated, times when there's a power differential, times when you've received criticism or rejection, or times when someone's acted similarly to your abuser, your mother, or another relationship you had. Triggers sometimes can be like anniversary dates on the calendar or times when a boundary's been crossed. They can be times when you felt invalidated or betrayed or left. You might be triggered by financial stuff or pressures or by sensory memories. There's a lot of places where a lot of things can come up. And a lot can come up for you when you're healing and walking yourself through the process that I've outlined. But it's important also to remember 
that these are some of the times when we still need that trauma brain. If you're being manipulated, if you're being treated like you used to be treated, we want trauma brain on the scene. We need that wiring for protection. So being manipulated again, you should have a reaction to that. We want you to connect to that so you can be clear about what it is you want to do about it. If you're being treated disrespectfully or you found yourself in a similar relational pattern as the one you had with your mother and you feel your body reacting to that, good. It sucks, but that's what we want for you because that's what healing is. You're connecting and recognizing the fact that you deserve more and that you're worthy of more. So we absolutely want you slowing down here and paying attention to how it feels in your body and what it is you might need. Now, in my last episode, I covered boundary setting. So if you haven't gone back and listened to that, you might want to because there's nothing that gets a reaction out of us or a trigger response out of us or a ruptured response out of us like a boundary being crossed. And that's the stuff we need to be paying attention to. This is all a lot. But I wanted to give you a starting point for this conversation. I wanted to offer you the beginning of a frame for how I think about these things, how I approach them, and how I encourage you to think about them and approach them for yourself. And I know I didn't get to everything. I I think I had these wild aspirations for all of you, including myself. So that perfectionism thing, I have to dial it down a little bit for myself and listen to myself around what's realistic here too. Because this is going to be an ongoing conversation with yourself, with me on the show, but hopefully you feel good about where we are today. Hopefully you like what I've offered you so far, and hopefully you connect to what I'm saying and the frame that I'm offering so that as we keep talking about it, you have a better sense of where I'm coming from and what it is I want for for all of you and what it is I wish for all of you. I so very much appreciate you having this conversation with me, and I'm already looking forward to when we can talk again next time. Thank you so very much for being here. I'm always in it with you. Bye for now. I'm so grateful that you're here. You're right where you're supposed to be. At its heart, I'm hoping to use this show to build the community of women working together to heal from childhoods marked by maternal narcissism and emotional neglect. My goal for Mother Mayhem is that this show becomes an advice and mentoring-driven show where you share your questions, struggles, and stories, and I offer you direction for healing and recovery. That can't happen without your contributions. I invite you to send a recorded voice memo or write in an email with your questions and things you're struggling with. You can always find me over at heather at daughtersnpd.com. To connect further, I invite you to find me over at Instagram and occasionally on TikTok at DaughtersNPD. If you know another woman who needs this conversation in her life, I'm going to ask that you share the show with her. You can help me get the word out with your reviews and social shares of the show, and I hope you'll consider doing so. Special thanks to Heather Clark for editing this show. She's in my head and knows what I meant to say when the words come out backwards. Thanks for your time today. I'm always in it with you. Bye for now.